has been in this movement before it was cool to be in this movement. Uh, I tell people sometimes, I've been black before it was popular. So Rashad's one of those people. He's been in this fight for a long time. Uh, he's the president of Color of Change, um, which is a leading racial justice organization with more than 7 million members. So when we say there's strength in numbers, Rashad Robinson is proof of that. And then we have Dreesen Keith. She is a researcher and advocate in the Human Rights Watch uh, United States program, and she focuses on racial justice issues. So uh, we don't have a lot of time. We want to be on time. Uh, I'm a Southern Baptist, so you know when the preacher says, I ain't going to take up too much time, and two hours in, he ain't even got to the announcements yet. We're not going to do that today. Um, so I want to kick off and, and turn to you, Demario, because you are at the center of this fight for reparations. And one thing that we've talked about, I'm sorry, I should introduce myself. I'm assuming everyone knows who I am. Hi, everybody. <laughs> My name is Tiffany Cross. Uh, I host the Cross Connection on MSNBC on Saturday mornings. And thank you all for tuning in. For those who do every Saturday, you, the audience, I look out, and you all are exactly the people uh, who I want to make proud every weekend. So I thank you all for your support and tuning you in. You do make us proud. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Demario, I want to start with you because you're at the center of this fight for reparations. And uh, something we talked about a little bit this morning on my show is um, there are people who feel like I'm not responsible for what my ancestors did. So you want to come in and take my money for something I didn't do. But that's not exactly the case. This is state-sponsored violence that robs the uh, survivors and descendants of not only lives, but their livelihoods. So if you can, tell us what's at the core, what's at the crux of this lawsuit that you brought against the city of Tulsa. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany, and thank everyone out there crux of it is a harm was done, damage was done to a people 100 years ago. We know who was harmed. We know what was stolen. It's very well documented. And we know who did it. We know the city of Tulsa authorized it. They armed them. And they gave them instruction to invade Greenwood. We know the county participated. We know the county sheriff participated. We know the Chamber of Commerce not only did they participate in the massacre, but after the massacre, when they put us in internment camps and forced us to work as enslaved people, cleaning up our own communities. So when they say they're not responsible, is the chamber still around? Yes. Is the city of Tulsa still around? Yes. Is the county, Tulsa County still around? Yes. Right? Is the state of Oklahoma still around? Yes. Okay, so the same entities who perpetrated the massacre and its 100 years a continuing harm through policy violence are still around. They're still, uh, they're still responsible, and we tend, but the help of everyone here and everyone listening, to hold them accountable. I want to stick with you, Demario, because uh, from a national perspective, there's some confusion going on about the commission versus the legacy fest. So as I understand it, the commission has raised over $30 million to create this Walt Disney type tourist attraction. I'm just curious how much of that $30 million is going to benefit the direct descendants and survivors of the massacre who were actually impacted by state-sponsored violence. Well, at this point, 
0.00 of the $30 million is actually going towards the people who rightfully deserve to have compensation for the stories that they use and leverage to raise this money. And the beauty of it is people like you, Tiffany, people like Rashad with Color of Change, Human Rights Watch, Angela Rye, Roland Martin, EJI, LDF, Sherilyn Eiffel, national groups that say, you know what, Tulsa is the test case. Tulsa is the microcosm of our larger struggle. If we cannot win Tulsa, if we cannot get a victory here when we have living survivors, then how can we get a victory on a national level? So because you loved us so much that you came in and stood strong with us as we stood against the most powerful entities in this city, we were able to show the truth of the matter is that while they're around about monuments and plaques and planting trees and building buildings, we're about building people, building our wealth and getting justice. I think that's such an important part of the argument, which brings me to Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, because when uh, Congressman John Conyers left Congress, uh, we had a champion in the Congresswoman who picked up the mantle of reparations. So I want to be clear for the audience, this was not even a bill for reparations. This was a bill for a committee to study the impact that racial injustice has had on every part of society. Can you tell us, Congresswoman, what is the role of the federal government when it comes to the fight that DeMario is leading and the overall case for reparations? Tiffany, thank you so very much for really what you have done and your beautiful, powerful program this morning and continuous. And I, I just want us to give her an enormous approach. If we don't have voices, we have nothing. DeMario, thank you. I always love a man that has a hyphenated name. Uh, so. Let me tell you that love is there. Um, to my brothers and sisters who are here, uh, to Encobra, to the National uh, Commission on Reparations, uh, to Color of Change, to Human Rights, Reason is a pleasure, uh, to the 300 plus multiple multicultural organizations on HR 40, uh, to my sister who we have bonded and I'm so delighted. I serve as chair, she serves as vice chair, powerful things will be coming. We're coming toward each other in so many different ways. Uh, Tiffany, I will never say that you are unright, but we have moved beyond uh, the original legislation written by John Conyers. Uh, may he rest in peace and rest in power. Um, it is important to take note of the fact uh, that the H.R. 40 was written one year after a Republican president issued reparations for our brothers and sisters who are Japanese Americans who in fact were interned in the 1940s, property taken unjustly, unjustly, without justice. And we, people of color, those of us who are descendants of enslaved Africans, rallied around our friends on the Japanese Americans for Ronald Reagan to sign the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. I'm boasting about that because I am not a fearful person. That means I do not fear you if you're in trouble. I'm in a ditch, I'm going to get you out of the ditch. I'm not going to be afraid of you. And so as African-Americans, my unangry approach is don't be afraid of us. We too are America, and we too must not be disenfranchised, and our pain must not be ignored, and our story has to be told, and justice is ours, says the Lord. Um,
Congress and being under the shoulders and umbrella of John Conyers on the Judiciary Committee, and when he retired, when he uh, passed away, subsequently after, but when he retired, uh, as one who had been a soldier, uh, and young folk out there, there's no problem of being a soldier on the battlefield before you're a general, but being a soldier under John, he was kind enough uh, to be able to give it. We then revised it. And so we have, it is a commission uh, to study, it has an apology in it, but it is then to act, and it is a bill. So it is a bill that then provides for the development of reparation proposals. That report then comes to the implementators, the people's representatives in the House and the Senate. Our job is not to mouth words. Our job is not to pontificate. Our job is not to be on the floor of the House. Our job is to do deeds. It is to correct. It is to make things right. It is to repair. And my colleague who is en route here, my dear friend, the Honorable Barbara Lee, stands with me as she speaks of reconciliation. We speak of repair. She knows that repair has to go forward, and she is front and center on that. So to make the story, let me just simply say, this slavery was government-sanctioned. Tulsa, Greenwood, was government-sanctioned. That's why my brother's in court. That's why, unfortunately, the courts did not do justice when they dismissed uh, those cases early on indicating barred by the Statue of Limitations? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. As far as I know, in some states, murder has no statute of limitations. <laughs> and so if you are going into court, even though some of these cases were civil, if you're going into, the, into court on the basis that somebody was murdered and you're trying to get relief, there should be no statute of limitations. Moving on, and if you think the CBC, let me just quickly say, um, I know there'll be another time, but let me, in the spirit of Joyce Beatty, our chairman, I'm an officer of the Congressional Black Caucus. Let me say that we are squarely, here's my sister here, we are front and center with you. We will never be moved. We are by the riverside, and we shall not be moved. Congressional Black Caucus is standing with you and is here with you. But let me finish quickly. The idea of H.R. 40 is that it is the actions both in Tulsa and various places that can be, let's say, the overall bondage was government sanctioned. It's simple. I'm not knocking on my neighbor's door who doesn't look like me and try to get anything from them. I don't want anything from you. In fact, you may have pain that I may want to help you with. But right now, the pain that we have or the injustice or the taking of wealth was government promoted. So please, Amer Americans and human rights activists and believers, it is government sanctioned. So we wrote this in the federal government because the federal government has to be the umbrella. The federal government is the one that sends soldiers in the battlefield to defend us. I didn't ask my neighbor to go get a pick and go over to World War II. I said soldiers will go. So the idea of this commission is not to leave anybody out. We're not talking about if you're saying money, that you're leaving you out. We're not talking about if you're saying catastrophic change, reformational change, educational change, complete change. HBCUs being never able to close their doors. Nothing is to be left out. Please understand me, my brothers and sisters. It is that we will have the commission. We've got to hear you. We've got to come to Oklahoma for a hearing, just like they came here. We've got to go to Mississippi for a hearing. We've got to go to Harlem for a hearing. And the idea is that you will then come and give the report to the government because you've been injured by the government. The black code, the failed reconstruction, Jim Crow lynching, and the civil rights movement and the four little girls in Birmingham, Alabama. And what, Tiffany, will happen is that the government, 
how federal governments will then respond. My words as I close on this question is, I too am an American. I wear the uniform of the police officer. Hear me out. When I say that, you know your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your neighbors, etc., have worn that uniform. I wear the uniform of the United States military. Uncle Red, 101 years old, Tulsa, went to World War II. They wanted him to be nothing. He was born. He should have been nothing. He should have been so angry that he did nothing. But he fought in World War II. With that in mind, I too am American. I cannot have a Congress or a government that fails me. I cannot be disenfranchised. I cannot be silenced. And I don't do it in anger, but I ask my brothers and sisters, let me thank my sister here coming in with all power, but also joining with fellow members. She just walked through the door. She's a co-sponsor, but others who don't look like either one of us, our progressive members of Congress that piled on to H.R. Boyd, conservative members, moderate members, let me thank them. For now is the time to go to the floor and vote on this. I can't be silenced. My story cannot be untold. You cannot be frightened from me. I am not frightened of your pain. Don't be frightened of mine. So the theme that we should have as we go here, I said this earlier, you need to leave out of here with no shoes on because you need to be able to tell folk that I have run so hard, I've lost my shoes because I'm going to ensure that reparations is accepted by the global America. Because I will tell you as an internationalist that once America votes on reparations, her voice becomes the voice of human rights. And so the folk in the continent will hear her. The folks in the Eastern Bloc will hear her in Europe. The folks down in South and Central America will hear her. The folks in Haiti will hear her. And the folks in the Mideast will hear her. They will be able to hear her as a voice of conscience. Because they'll be able to see. And they'll say, she has repaired her people. Then she has legitimacy to help repair me. That is what H.R. 40 is. That's why I'm here. That's why I applaud my brothers, my sister. That's why I'm here to listen. And that's why the Congressional Black Caucus and numbers are flying in. I'm their renaissance woman, they're, 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 they're reconnaissance. I came in early to see if y'all were gonna receive us. But anyhow, they're on the way. And they're on the way to be gifting and giving, and they're on the way. Forgive me, I'm so sorry, the passion is in my heart. I don't want anybody on here to have no shoes on. I'm getting ready to kick mine off. Because you need to show that you're out here working. Working. Working! Just real quickly, I want to talk about working. When we went to D.C. last week for our congressional hearing, which was amazing because of people like Representative Lee, Chief Jackson Lee and Representative Bush, she met us outside the Capitol because they were trying to have us drop off our, our survivors and we were going to have to walk half a mile to the Capitol. She was out there talking to the officers, saying, no, these people will not be here. We got special treatment because of this woman right here. It was blazing hot. It was no cameras. It was no TV. She was just there for us. Walked us into a special interest. Had to call the sergeant of arms because they had an, an order not to allow anyone through there. 
She makes sure we got where we needed to go with ease and comfort. We thank her and the Congressional Black Caucus for everything that they're doing to support us here in Tulsa. I think it's an important point you made about there were no cameras because so many people across the country always ask, but what is the Congressional Black Caucus doing? And the work continues every day. And you have to remember that the cameras don't always show up when it's not a sexy story, or if it don't bleed, it don't lead, you know, and they're out there doing the work every day that doesn't always get that kind of uh, celebration and attention, so I thank you. Um, Congresswoman Bush, I wanna move to you because your life has been touched in so many ways. You have quite a testimony. You're a survivor of domestic police and sexual violence, yes. and despite all those things, here you are, a member yes. of Congress, the first black woman to represent St. Louis, the first nurse to represent St. Louis in Congress. And no one can deny you are a woman of the people, yes. uh, and the people helped elevate you here. So even in your life, I think all of the issues that you faced are predicated on systemic and institutional racism right. and white supremacy. So the important thing to remember about Tulsa, it's a microcosm for the rest of the country. This isn't about Tulsa, it's bigger than Tulsa, it's about all our lived experience. From your perspective, what would reparations do if DeMario is successful in his case? What would reparations do? What would it mean for not just the people of Tulsa, but for the descendants of the enslaved people across this country? So because, first of all, let me say to Tulsa, thank you for making sure you kept this thing before our faces so that we can make sure that we take this thing as high as we can go. I'm so sorry, I have to say, I'm so sorry that the world has made this a t-shirt, but we're doing the work. We're doing the work to make sure that it's not just a t-shirt. Right. Um, you know, just coming from a place where I didn't understand or know that the things that I was going through was not just my fault. You know, just living the way that I was living, just always feeling like I couldn't get anywhere. You know, am I a bad person? Did I do this to myself? Is it, you know, did, like, what is wrong with me that I can't get out of debt? What is wrong with me that I work a low-wage job even though I'm taking care of somebody, of, of, of kids all day long and I'm teaching them how to read and teaching them Spanish and I'm doing all of this and I can't seem to, I don't even have health care and it's messing up my credit. I can't seem to, it was just so many things, payday loan cycle and, and, and just so much and I just couldn't understand, am I not worth more? How do people get there where they, where they have a life where they don't have to worry every single day if something is going to be shut off. Like, what does that look like? I have gone for my whole life, after I left my parents' home, that has been an everyday thing to me. My whole life, up until very recently, was am I sure that something won't be cut off? Am I sure that I have the money for my rent? Am I sure that I have the money for my car? No, car insurance, how do I pay that? I got to pay for this other stuff. Let's just be real. That was, that was my life. But not understanding that policy, policy affected my life in such a negative way because policy overlooked me because systemic the systemic racism when we don't call it what it is when we don't talk about how institutionalized racism is when we don't talk about how it's in every single thread when we don't talk about how how white supremacy is in every single aspect of our country and every single aspect of life when we don't call it what it is then we end up there thinking that it's me. We look, when I think about my, I think about my, my home and 
one for police murder for year after year, number one for the murder of children by guns, all of these things. Is it St. Louis? Is it Tulsa? Is it Detroit? Is it black folks? No. You know what it is? We started out. We started out at this disadvantage. We started out with this thing, this inequity. We started out them telling us we need equality. Well, we can't get the equality if you don't go through the door of equity. And then don't talk to me about equity if you're not giving me justice. And the and the root of all of that has got to be love. But America don't love black folks. And we got to remember that. And so that's okay because we'll love one another. And, and, and the, the best way that we can love one another is to call it out and say, you know what, you won't get it for me, but we will. So we go to the local level and go and, and do that work um, in, in, uh, in elected offices. We go to the state house and we do that work. We go to Congress and go to the federal office to do that work. So for me, what it looks like is, first of all, life. I always say, Michael Brown, that's how I have to give honor to Michael Brown and to his family because that's how I got into this work. He would have been 25 a couple of weeks ago, a few days ago. When I think about people say, well, what is justice? What does justice look like? Justice is Michael Brown being alive today. Justice, Floyd, justice is George Floyd bring, being alive and Atantiana Jefferson and, 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 and so many others. That's justice. We don't have that right now, and so that's what we have to fight for. How do we get that? We're working for make sure everybody has a livable wage. I don't I don't care what your job is. If you flipping burgers, baby, I want to make sure that you are flipping these burgers right. And you I want to make sure that your mind is well and that your home is well. Because if you're giving me food, I need you to be taken care of. So so that makes so a livable wage for everybody, making sure everybody has health care. I watch my patients die. I'm a nurse by trade. I watch my patients die because they didn't have access to health care or they had access but no care. And so they were rationing insulin. Me and my cousin, we sharing insulin. That's how my patients died. And you know what? Because I know that I got to do something about it. And so making sure everybody has health care, making sure each and every person has clean air, clean water, that's how we do it. Making sure we're investing economically in our communities. Nope, I'm not looking to anybody else to do it. I'm kicking the door in myself. And I'm asking whoever want to come along with me, come along with me. And we're doing this thing fearlessly. We're we not asking. We're not begging. We're walking in, taking it. And to me, that's just when we save lives. I went to Congress to save lives. I can't even help people until I save your life first. So I went to Congress to save your life, and then later I can help you.
awareness, retweets, shout outs from the stage. It's the thing that people want to give us so that we go away. But power is the ability to change the rules. When we mistake presence for power, we can sometimes think we've done something that we haven't actually done. We'll mistake a black president for thinking we're post-racial. We will sometimes think that um, America loving uh, and celebrating black celebrities means that America loves black people as much as America loves black culture. And America can love, celebrate, and monetize black culture and hate black people at the same time. And those two things don't actually have to be in conflict. And so as I think about the road ahead and the work that we have to do at Color of Change to mobilize our 7.2 million members, black folks and allies of every race, um, I think about both the founding of Color of Change, which was in the aftermath of a flood, which was Hurricane Katrina, which was caused by bad decision makers and turned into a life-altering disaster by bad decision makers. And Katrina illustrated a lot of things that we continue to see, whether it's through COVID-19 or whether it's through so many other moments, because it illustrates things that are already written in research reports, already in documentaries, uh, geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impact of what we've done to our planet, all the ways in which systems um, are not broken, but operating exactly the way they are designed. And the thing about those moments is that despite all those things, the thing that really animates them is no one was nervous about disappointing black people. Government corporations, and media. So our work ahead is really about building the power to force institutions to be nervous about disappointing us, to do the work to hold the enablers accountable, to not simply go after the right wing, but to go after the corporations that play with the right wing and tell us that they're on our side and come for our money by day but take away our vote by night. And then the final thing I just want to say about all this is that we have to all start telling a different story not just about what happened in Tulsa, but what happens in general when it comes to structural racism. Because far too often we tell stories about what's happened in our society, stories of inequality, like they're almost car accidents. Like they kind of just happen, right? So we tell these stories and it makes people feel so sorry. So when we tell stories about inequality that are unfortunate rather than unjust, we get charitable solutions to structural problems. And so what I mean by that is, we will get people sending water bottles to Flint and then wiping their hands and going away instead of corporations paying their fair share of taxes so the pipes are actually clean. We will get people saying, let's do a service day at inner city schools instead of actually changing public education. We will get people saying, let's do reentry programs instead of ending mass incarceration when America has 4% of the world's population and 25% of, of the world's incarcerated population. So it's not that black people are less likely to get a loan from the bank, it's that banks are less likely to give loans to black people. It's not black people are less likely to get hired by big business, it's that big business excludes black people from their employee ranks. Because what we don't need is more financial literacy programs from banks that have targeted, excluded, and redlined us from the very beginning. We actually need structural change. We don't need mentorship programs from corporations we actually need them to end the racism inside of their ranks. That is how we translate presence into power, and we can only do it by coming together. So, you know, Tulsa, you have done so much work to put this on the national stage, and so I'm gonna ask one more thing from you, not just from you, but as you think about the, the folks out in the world, we need to continue to build more power and more numbers, because whether it is the work that's happening in Congress, or whether it's the work that we are
are trying to do in local governments around the country to bring about more equity. We will always lose in the back rooms of politics unless we have the people lined up at the front door. So I'm going to ask you to take out your phone because that's what we do at Color of Change. We translate energy into action. I'm going to ask you to take out your phones. I'm going to ask you to type Tulsa to 55156. Tulsa to 55156. That will sign you up to the work. It's going to ask you for your zip code, but I'm going to ask you to, to engage the people in your network because what we're going to be doing over the next year is working to support HR 40, working to fight for infrastructure, working to fight at the local level to force prosecutors to be accountable to our community, and working right here with you all in supporting DeMario and the survivors on the road ahead. So that is how Rashad Robinson is saving lives uh, through the work of Color of Change. And um, when you were talking about, you know, the charity and infrastructure and, you know, we don't need mentorship programs. And I sure wish somebody from the commission was in here to hear that. Um, I think that's a, a message, a word you gave us today. So, Dreesen, one thing that I find that's been really frustrating for me is the talk of reparations um, when I've engaged people who have not been impacted by a systemic racism the same way we have. And they say, their retort is, well, the talk of reparations makes people uncomfortable. And I could give a damn how uncomfortable people are and get comfortable being uncomfortable because this is the conversation that we're having. And this isn't really a revolution, it's an evolution. This is a dinosaur that doesn't want to be, be uh, extinct. How do we move this conversation into policy in a way that bypasses anybody else's feelings of discomfort? Thank you for that question and thank you all for being here. Um, Tulsa has a special place in my heart um, being born here, but having a homecoming by responding to the compounded pain that you are experiencing, thriving through it all, but still experiencing it day by day. So I'm honored to be in community with you all today um, and honored to be with this esteemed panel. Um, you know, it's interesting when there are arguments about um, reparations being a difficult conversation or even acknowledging systemic racism. Because you know what's difficult and Africans were kidnapped on the continent and brought over here, were brutalized, were raped, were in, forced into labor, um, and did not receive any restitution from that, those experiences. You know what's uncomfortable when Tulsans were shot in their homes, shot in the streets, burned in their homes, their houses, their businesses, black wealth, black wealth not white wealth built on black bodies. This was wealth, white, black wealth. Um, it's uncomfortable when the, you know, the National Guard is literally taking black people out of their homes, disarming them of their guns so that they can't defend themselves when they are rounded up into concentration camps and malnutrition. They were stillborn and premature births. lives that didn't live, and yet we have survivors here today fighting, pleading. Mother Fletcher, first trip to Washington, 
first trip to Washington, she had to flee for her life. So we're here today, um, you know, to talk about, okay, what is equitable good policy? Something that federal, state, and local governments have done for white people historically, but not for black and brown communities, um, not for poor communities, um, but also the conversation about reparations. Um, at the root of that word is repair. That should not make you uncomfortable. Y'all should go around every day next week and just say reparations. Randomly to people. Just say reparations. Reparations now. Right? That should not be uncomfortable. When we have a physical ailment, when we have a physical injury, we have to rehabilitate that injury, right? To get better. Or else you're going to have complications in the rest of your body. And that's what black people have been dealing with their entire existence in this country. And so without repair, you can't even benefit from good public policy because you have not rectified the past wrongs that are ongoing wrongs. Um, these racist classes institutions are here today. They didn't go anywhere. So it's important that we you know, develop equitable policy, develop um, investments in infrastructure. But that has to come alongside reparations. I don't care about the feasibility. The government should have not committed the crimes and the harms that they did. You raise your price every time you violate human rights. And that's not on the part of the victims and the people. That's on the part of the perpetrators and people that are culpable. So they should have to live with that and account for that without any questions. Um, we're here in Tulsa. Um, the fight for reparations is live. It's live and we need more people to be engaged. Um, in, in international human rights law, kind of wonky, but you know there are many forms that are reparative, that many forms that are necessary specifically in the case of Tulsa, where you can't just have the government throw a history center and say, here's your reparations. Huh? Reparations is a victim-centered process. You can't handpick black people out of the community also that you want to represent to say, this is our reparations. <laughs> What it is is an extensive consultative process that centers the people that have been harmed from start to finish. It is no in-between. They should be a part of the decision-making, not we make the decisions behind closed doors and then we're going to consult with you later. Um, only communities who have been harmed can determine their recipe for repair. And we should empower each other to keep that fight up. Um, and to develop multiple remedies. In Tulsa, yes, there needs to be financial compensation. There need, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that need to be paid back, <laughs> not just for loss of property and economic and sexual damage, but also for moral losses, loss of opportunity. These things have been quantified in other countries. One example is Australia. An indigenous community just um, won a high court decision for getting compensation for their loss to spiritual collection, um, their spiritual connection to land. Um, 
while they were colonized. They lost that. That can be quantified. That harm can be paid. But in addition to that, trauma-informed care. You're hearing Mother Fletcher, Mother Randall, Mr. Ellis, talk, live through their trauma as they testify. How is that impacting them right now? How is that impacting the defendants who have to sit in these rooms and live with whether or not their family members' bodies are in those mass graves, that have to live with the loss of intergenerational wealth, that have to live with the fact that they, you know, may reside in North Tulsa and then are, you know, beaten by police at three times um, more rates than other white people in other neighborhoods in South Tulsa. So it's a compounded issue that needs multiple solutions. Um, and public policy is not going to do it alone, especially policies that have historically disinvested in communities like Tulsa, but it emphasizes why reparations must be comprehensive um, and address the full scope of harm that has happened here. Right. I, I think that, thank you very much. I'm, I'm coming to you. So, so Mario, I think uh, Reason raised some good points about Mother Fletcher, Mother Randall, and Uncle Red reliving this trauma um, and the way that we bury and normalize trauma in our communities. Something I thought was interesting, um, as you know, I spoke with Mayor D.C. Bynum uh, about this commission and uh, Brother Nehemiah, who runs um, the Black Wall Street Times, his research, yes, absolutely, please applaud for Nehemiah. He has a very fascinating report uh, which unearthed some things about Mayor Bynum, his family, um, according to the census records of 1861, enslaved 987 uh, black people here in the country. And we asked the mayor about it. He says that, you know, he doesn't know anything about it was his official response. But I think the bigger point is he inherited his position in life. He inherited his wealth and has the temerity today to be against cash payout reparations to the people of the community, instead offering what Brother Rashad talks about, let's start with economic opportunity, whatever that means. So I'm curious from you and the people in Tulsa, he's in elected positions. Um, if the people in power are the enslavers, the descendants of murderers, the descendants of thieves, then how do we wrest away that power and put it back in the rightful hands of the people who once built this community and uplifted this community? build that power by what we're doing right here today, which is not just talking, but we're organized together. We have a diverse group of individuals and organizations just on this stage. You have elected officials, you have powerful policy groups, you have powerful organizing groups, you have law, and that's what we must continue to do. We must pool our resources, pool our talent, and work together. And those, at this point in history, there is no ambiguity. There is no neutrality. Either you with us for truth, justice, and reparations, or you are against us, regardless of where you live or how you look. You got to pick a side. It's 2021. If we have no time for ambiguity, a car parked in neutral goes nowhere. We're trying to go towards justice, as the sister said. Before we can get to equity and equality, we must have justice, and that requires truth. The truth of the matter is, people like Mayor Bynum, who says he's against reparations, what he's against is paying black people what we're owed. That is what he's against. Because let me tell you something that happened during COVID. During COVID, 
All businesses shut down, just like all other places around the country. The city of Tulsa, with the mayor's positive and excitement pushing it, created a fund to provide resources, direct cash payments to companies and nonprofits impacted by COVID. Now, did I have anything to do with COVID? But some of my tax dollars went to these companies that were impacted by COVID. But that's okay. But when it comes to black people receiving what we are owed, that is when the Dred Scott belief that a black man has no rights or the white man is bound to respect comes out. We must fight against that at all costs. And let me say one thing that Dreesen said about this trauma. It's real. When I talked to Mother Fletcher and we about the Watchmen, and I showed her a clip doing her deposition, she couldn't watch it. And I think when we have these movies like Watchmen and Lovecraft and other movies, which is good for awareness, these were people's mothers, grandmothers. When you see T-shirts that have the name Smitherman or Stratford, these are real people. That's real trauma. And you take in their narratives, and there has to be an acknowledgement of that. That's why in our lawsuit, one of the things we call for is a resources for emotional and mental trauma. And people need to be respectful before you do this documentary, this movie, whatever. You're talking about real flesh and blood. On The Watcher, which I think is a fantastic show, they talk about the Dreamland Theater all the way through it. The Williams family is still alive. And they didn't receive zero from the Watchmen. So the exploitation must stop across all platforms. Banks failed us, stole our money. Insurance companies failed us, stole our money. And now they're being re-exploited. So I appreciate you bringing up the trauma because it's real. Even for descendants who we're in contact with, Justice for Greenwood Foundation, we're in contact with hundreds of descendants. They feel the trauma. And we know scientifically, Congresswoman, that trauma can live through DNA. It can be passed down. That's a scientific fact that we've already known in our community. It's a scientific fact. So as you said, comprehensive, it must be comprehensive across all platforms and all exploitation needs to stop. Thank you. I want to ask you, Congresswoman, because Demario makes a really good point about generational trauma in our community. And one thing that I found very fascinating about when Mother Fletcher and Mother Randall and Uncle Red testified on Capitol Hill, I mean, you called out Mayor G.C. Bynum. You said on in Congress and called this man out for his lack of response. So I'm curious from your perspective, representing the federal government here, the Congressional Black Caucus, the committees that you sit on, um, when it comes to the divide between the federal government and local government, how do we address this issue? Because we have the filibuster issue in the Senate. Um, there is some level of negotiating um, at the Light State Congress. And so given the people who gifted and worked hard and risked life and limb to deliver the power of the federal government to Democrats, how are Democrats showing up for the people on ground who are still in this fight? And what do you say to people who are still trying to negotiate your bill, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, the George Floyd Policing Act? What do we say to those people um, who are waiting for some sort of result for the work that they've done? Well, Tiffany, thank you so very much. We, we, we have a job to do. Uh, 17 presidential candidates in 2020 asked by 
the esteemed Honorable Reverend Al Sharpton indicated that they supported reparation. They're scattered across the nation. They're back in the United States Senate. And I want people to understand what H.R. 40, as we've listened to uh, the, the lack of response, we've listened to my sister recount um, uh, next check, uh, why am I like this, understand that the position that we were put in is that we were, we were basically left to our own devices, and that was not much. Abraham Lincoln did in 1863. Remember, those of us west of the Mississippi didn't get it until 1865. That was the Emancipation Proclamation. The Reconstruction was broken because of a compromise. And, and I think when we talk about history, we should understand, because Tiffany, that is what, when you say what we're going to be doing, that is what maybe constituents of different members, congressional districts, are pushing toward them. Why are we doing this? Because we fail to know. No one teaches the history 1619 project. So they don't know that nothing was ever given. And so you basically were left with nothing. But we became, in quotes, good citizens and made uh, silk out of pig's ear. That's basically what we did. People want to talk about chitlins was what we had. Greens was what we had. Our diet came from what we had. And so we attempted to write the H.R. 40 legislation not to be narrow and not to be able to have our community say, well, what is it? It is a scientific, psychological, educational, economic, and political analysis of our condition today. And it takes and it builds upon the pyramid, if you will, of what I've just said, the broken, never fixed system of freedom that they gave, including, again, the lynching that went on. Then we went into a civil rights movement, uh, and we shed blood then. We shed blood in World War One, World War Two. We shed blood. We did it as good citizens, and yet we were broken. And PTSD is real. It is in the DNA. That's why you would ask the question, and then let me say to those negative folk, well, you got black-on-black -black crime. Don't say that to me, okay? Look to these cruel actions that really can travel and be transmitted in the soil. We are on, I said it at the, uh, I don't know what that was, City Club or wherever we were, God forgive me, beautiful place, but we are right now on in Greenwood. This is Greenwood. This is where bustling communities, Mother Mac or the Mac family's house you pass by. That's what we were living in in 1921. Brick homes that no one gave to us. I took a moment to kneel on the grass and ask my faith, my Christianity, my prayers to be able to get me ready for dealing with this. I wanted to touch the grass. I am told we are on Greenwood. I can't see anything. I can't see Mother Fletcher's home, Mother Randall's home. I can't see it. But my colleagues have to understand, as Recent has said, that there can be no distaste for reparations because the wealth quotient now is so high, and I didn't create that. I did not squander my money that you gave me. I did not ruin my life. I didn't get anything. 
And so the government, I believe, and what the next steps are, and allow me just to call off Joyce Beatty, our chair, and, and Ho Stephen Hawkswood, and uh, Hank Johnson, uh, uh, Congressman Wilson. We are the executive committee, myself, Magoose, uh, and Brenda Lawrence, representing the Congressional Black Caucus and all their individual work. Our commitment, if you want to know for next steps, is that we are embracing H.R. 40, and that we hope and pray that we move it to the floor, that it is the action item of going into everything that we have talked about. That's, we, we will look in the criminal justice system why we are still fodder, why Michael Brown, and before I knew her, I was in Ferguson. I had this thing about kneeling. I knelt on the floor. I just had to get strength from it. And I saw the street, how narrow it was, and how Michael could have just been any other boy, just going home, or just let me just drive away. Why would he lose his life? Why would he stop that? Is his life so devalued that you thought it didn't matter? That you could just shoot? Remember now, that comes down through the ages. Somebody is taught that our value is not worth it. So H.R. 40 is to turn that around and to say, no, America recognizes that there is value. We didn't get the value. Mother Fletcher didn't get it. Your clients didn't get it. Tulsa didn't get it. Greenwood didn't get it. And it has to be valued. So that's the next step. When we did the commemoration, I don't want anybody to say, well, I didn't read in the Bible. Never had anything in the congressional record to talk about this story. The Congressional Black Caucus was determined, thank you to Senator Warren who has the bill, but we were determined in the Senate, let me thank her, to get it at least in the United States House Congressional record. The story, the violence, made it a priority. And we found a way where you don't move those bills that fast. That I came here where that bill was passed. In the House of Representatives, H.R.S. 398, that tells Tulsa Greenwood's story because we made it a priority. We now go to the next step. We're going to go to the next step of the bills that we all have, that are the bills dealing with the criminal justice. Hank Johnson has a claim bill, and he is proceeding to go to court. But you have to be with us. So when we say next step, watch us. It is to get reparations. Never in the history of the United States Congress did a bill on reparations ever pass the Judiciary Committee or any committee. On April 14, 2021, that bill came out of the Judiciary Committee with flying colors. And what that means is it is ready to go to the floor. Right. It has been vetted by a House committee. My, without any bragging, that's why she got on it. Most powerful committee in the United States Congress. It deals with your life. And so it got out of that committee. Thank you to our Chairman Nassar and Steve Cohen and others now, folks, next step, oh, I'm not saying that this is the panacea, that, that, that the light will shine and, 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 and the bricks and mortar of where black people live right now, that every question will be answered. But we will be in a position to demand response. And what that means is the report will come to Congress, and we as members will then have the authority, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this. As it is now, even with the American Jobs Plan, we are all in that. I support the American Jobs Plan. I don't want to go small. I want to go big. American Jobs Plan right now, let's go big. And let's look. You know, we're not selfish. American Jobs Plan doesn't have black people's name on it. So we go big. We're going to be all in the rim, all in the corners of Tulsa, all in the corners of Houston, corners of St. Louis, and every other corner. 
America's job plan is so big, American family plan is so big. These are the bills that the Biden administration is also. We're prepared to go big on H.R. 40, let's go big and analyze and present to the American people that the worth of black people and the burden of slavery and the wealth we created, we made cotton king. No taxation then. We made cotton king on our back. We made the transatlantic slave trade rich. We made the South, the landed South rich. We made the Wall Street banks in New York. We made the commodities, the future in the Midwest. That was us. So you understand that have some black folks stand up and say, that was me. That was me. That was me. That was me. I can't hear you. And I'm not selfish. That was me. And so my commitment is this and I close. Human Rights Watch, my good friend, fellow change, um, you, you've got to travel internationally to see our face internationally. And in spite of what we get angry about, America is still perceived as the hope. We had our moments. I, I know we, we had some moments. But if you're struggling in some village somewhere, if you, if you are human traffic somewhere outside of this country, and they said, well, America is coming. Do you know the standing we will get internationally if we do this? I, I think I said at the beginning, I don't want to be redundant, but do, do you know that the, the headlines in the French papers on the continent of Africa, do you know the headlines? Because they, they live off of, is America good? So I don't know why our folk want to fight this when we're giving them a gift. Do this and your standing to talk to anybody gets to be where, oh, uh, let me, let me, oh, America, they just gave reparations. Or they just passed H.R. 40. Or they just dealt and did what is right for people who were burned to the ground, bodies in the street. I, I get like this because I'm saying, what, what, what is common sense? <clears throat> It's not, it's, not, it's not anything difficult to do. And the one thing I want to say to folks that don't look like me, it is important for you to understand my pain. Because when you're in pain, because I'm an American, the United States of America, I feel your pain. And I want to help, you know, bail out companies that I don't have a dime in, but I figure they have somebody, somebody has a job because they got a corporation somewhere. The one thing I'll say about us, we're not a stingy people. We get in other people's fights. We get in other people's ditches. And we go to grab them out. We stand behind other people and along other people. We don't want you to be undermined because you don't look like us, but you're in a ditch. I want people to understand that. We have gotten in ditches with people. And so America... 
you got to get it out, bitch. Because we're given a gift. And that gift is that if you do this in many different ways, if you pull the people out, like my sister, who are still in your image will be without disguise. And your image will be such that your power will be not by your money, it'll be by your deeds. That's the name there. Thank you, Congresswoman. Oh, we are well over time, but because you gave us such a word and because my brother Rashad brought up some really good points, I would just leave you all with this because I think it's important that we live beyond hashtag activism. There are a lot of fights out there from voting rights to the lynchings that are still going on today. And I just want to say there are people in this audience who were the dream and the hope of being enslaved. And if that's the case, then what are you sowing into our communities 100 and 200 years from now? What will our children 200 years from now, if they are our dreams and hopes, what are we sowing into our communities today? If everyone does a little, no one has to do a lot. So thank you all for joining this conversation, for your spirit and enthusiasm. But it's a wonderful panel. And Demario, we are with you in this fight. Congresswoman, we're with you in this fight. Everyone else on the panel, thank you so much for providing great content. Thank you.